This episode of the Juicebox Podcast is sponsored by Dexcom, Omnipod, and Dancing for Diabetes. You can go to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox, dexcom.com forward slash juicebox, or dancing the number four diabetes.com to find out more about the sponsors. There are also links in your show notes right there in your podcast app and at juiceboxpodcast.com. In this week's episode of the podcast, I will be speaking with Megan, an adult who has had type 1 diabetes for quite some time. Megan and I are going to speak today about her life with type 1, the anxiety that she experiences, how she's handling it, and how she's brought her A1C from a double-digit number to where it is today. At the very end of the podcast, I have a note from Megan that I'll share with you, a little postscript to the episode. Well, I'd like to get right to it, so let me just remind you that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise, and that you should always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Little programming note, Megan and I talk about uh, marijuana for like a couple of seconds towards the end of the episode. It's nothing salacious. I just wanted to let you know. Uh, my name is Megan Carlson. I live in Chicago, Illinois. I like it. Short and to the point. Okay, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I want to tell you that your email about wanting to be on the show was so sort of concise and well laid out that I think for the first time I might just follow the course of your email for this interview. <laughs> Okay. So I need to know first, and you don't have to tell me where you work, but what kind of work do you do? Because this is very well thought out and, and presented. I do communications for a living. That makes sense then, doesn't it? Yeah. I work, I work in nonprofits, but I do communications and marketing. I work in, working in a nonprofit doesn't mean you don't do, you were like, I, I work in a nonprofit. Are you trying to tell me you're poor? Is that the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, I've definitely been there, but um, <laughs> just more that I think like there's this like glossy marketing, slick corporate I image, see. and that's not my day to day. Not what you do. Well, I'm going to, listen, you made this one really easy and I think it's incredibly interesting. So let me just sort of start with like, let's get the whole idea set up here for a mm -hmm. second. So you were diagnosed when you were four in 1992. How old are you now? I'm 31. Okay. So 27, right? 27 years you've had type one diabetes. That's a long, yes. a long blank time. So, uh, okay. So I wanted you to tell me a little bit, obviously you don't remember being diagnosed at four or maybe you do. Very little. I remember being in the hospital. I don't remember the lead up. I've heard the story. You know, it's kind of the traditional thing. I was very sick, very thirsty. Um, and then being in the hospital and the rooms being yellow and not being able to eat when I wanted to. <laughs> There's a strong possibility we start off calling this one very sick, very thirsty, yellow, <laughs> yellow room. Because I, I never heard anyone. I like that you can tell. Hold on. Let's, let me start my thought over. You can tell that you've had diabetes for a long time because you're not that interested in telling the story of like the beginning. It's just like, look, I was sick and I was thirsty and I went to the hospital. That's what happened. It happens to everybody. Blah, blah, blah. Very, <laughs> very nice. I like that. 
Um, but you described your family um, and their sort of aversion to doctors to me. And I wonder if you couldn't put that into context. Don't forget, check out dancingfordiabetes.com. That's dancing, the number four, diabetes.com. Yeah, sure. I think that, um, so it's not, so I just read Tara Westover's Educated, and I wouldn't say my family is anything like that. That's like a very, like, a culture that doesn't appreciate the medical industry. I would say my family's issues with doctors and hospitals are really out of fear and a, a bit out of money. Like, it's expensive to go, and I think it's just, it's passed down. My grandma, we still can't get her to go to the doctor without a fight. So, and my dad, I don't think is into the doctor in like years and years and years. So it was just one of those things that it felt scary. So nobody did it. Do they not go because they don't need a doctor or do they need a doctor and they don't go in spite of that? Well, well, so I grew up with my grandparents and my dad. Um, I would say it varies by person. My grandma is just very like, will not go if she, even if she needs to, it's a constant battle among us all. Um, my dad's been pretty healthy. I think that's kind of it. It's like, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, which is a bad way to look at your interactions with the healthcare system. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, for certain, let me ask, and you don't have to go too far into other people's details, but your grandmother, an older woman, I would imagine. And she's alive, right? So she is. Yeah. So is she just like in, is she like an old busted down car that every time you look at it, you think, I can't believe that thing runs or is she doing okay? <laughs> she's, you know, and she had a couple, she has to go a little bit more now. We had some scares kind of five or six years ago where she did have to go to the hospital. And so she's had to do it. And, you know, she has medication now. So it, it's just a little bit of a, a back and forth with her all the time. <laughs> um, doesn't make it easy, <laughs> but, uh, but she's getting the, the care she needs. So that's good. But for the, but you know, but you grew up in a, in a family who, weren't going to doctors, not even just not running to them, but they weren't using them when they needed so much. And then all of a sudden you had a chronic illness and you describe in your email that there, your visits were infrequent and sort of just there for you to get yelled at and get your prescription. Um, yeah. Can, do you remember, do you have any thoughts or memories of that as you were growing up? Oh, a, a lot. Um, it going to the doctor was really, uh, I don't think I'm overstating it by saying it was a traumatic experience because we didn't go very much. And that was as a child outside of my control. Like now I know like it wasn't, you know, I, I, there's nothing I could have done, but we didn't go. And then the, we had one nurse practitioner at the children's hospital who just, I can, I can picture her face. Even now we'd go in, I'd get my A1C, which I don't remember. So to preempt that question, um, and she would just, it would just be so much judgment. And why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you doing this? And then we, I would just wait for it to be over. And then we could wait another, whenever, three months, one year. We hustled a lot to get prescriptions. Um, but yeah, it was not a good experience. It was not helpful. I never felt like that was part of a team. And it's so funny. I think another thing with my family and the, and like the healthcare complex is just, they weren't able to advocate for themselves. And I think they didn't understand what was going on. So I think a big component of this is ignorance. And so we didn't know we could see a different doctor. We didn't have to go to the same judgy person all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's kind of what the, the whole interaction was like. I always wonder if there's, so you, you describe like a situation where your family wasn't like, you weren't going in the door like, Hey, we're here. We want to learn, tell us more. Plus you've got type one and it's, you know, largely invisible. And I wonder if it was largely invisible to your father. And, and he just thought mm -hmm. like, look, Megan gets up in the morning, she's going to school. 
she's, you know, she's okay. I, I wonder how much of that, I mean, 27 years ago is, you know, it's, the, it's what's it, 1990-ish? Like right yeah. in there, right? It's not exactly the stone age of, you know, of diabetes. But if your dad didn't have any context for it and you weren't like falling on the floor, he probably was like, she's fine. Or do you think that he didn't think that? Do you have any idea what his perception was? Yeah. So I think um, we've talked about it a lot now. Um, so back then, this is before carb counting, really, like carb exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, you still carb counted, but it was back when I've heard you have other guests who are a little older where you have like a meal and you have to have like your bread and your dairy and your, you know, all these different things. And you eat very strict times. And so he was good about that. And we kept on it. I think the fear with him younger is always that you're going to go to bed and not wake up. So there were a lot of, I think, fear with him around lows. Um, and then, I, but what you're describing, I think was very much the case as I got older and started to manage more on my own, mm-hmm. um, especially my, my teenage years and definitely into my adulthood was that, oh, she's, she's obviously taking care of it. She's a smart girl. I always did well in school. Like, so, oh, she must have it under control. Like everything's fine. And I think there's some just not knowing. And I definitely wasn't opening up at that time. Like the, I know the big theme of our talk right now is like the sh- is shame and anxiety. Like I was not openly talking about my diabetes for a long, long time. So I'd be like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, but I think another component of that is some willful ignorance. Like, oh, she says she's fine. I'm not going to probe further, even though if you thought about it a little more, you might be able to tell I wasn't doing great. Megan, you've just described 96% of the marriages that I know. <laughs> <laughs> she, I mean, she didn't say she was unhappy, but she's crying. Yeah, but she didn't say it. Uh, right. Yeah, right. No, no. Um, so, okay. <laughs> I'm not characterizing my marriage that way. I was just saying that I, there, it's very common for people to just look the other way. You know, I'll worry mm-hmm. about it tomorrow. I'm too busy to think about it today. This isn't a pressing issue. And, or I wouldn't know what to do if it was a pressing issue. So let's just tell everybody be grateful that nobody's asking me for the the answer. And and you know what too? Do you have siblings? I have. Um, I'm an only child for the for all intents and purposes. Intents and purposes. Uh, I have three half siblings, but I didn't grow up with them. They weren't I didn't in grow the up house. With my mom. That's all yeah, I was wondering. No. They were in the house. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Because sometimes too, in a multiple like child situation. The one who appears to be getting the good grades and getting their homework done, you never ask them, hey, do you need a hand with that? And, you know, and then when they're adults, they're like, hey, you never helped me. You helped everyone else. And I could have used help. And, you know, it could, but you're not in that situation exactly. Okay. Um, so, but you also weren't going to him and saying, dad, I'm not doing well with this. Would you have gone to him about other things that weren't diabetes related? up it's you know it's hard to remember um we've been pretty close I'd say we've gotten even closer as an adult so now I talk a lot about this all the diabetes stuff with him back then I'm trying to think I don't know if like as a teenage girl you go to your dad for every single thing <laughs> yeah my situation but, here is so much different that, that that's why I asked I don't like you, you in the in the very end of your note you're like don't forget you know around Arden's period and blah, 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 like talking about that we talk about that here constantly oh I, good <laughs> yeah cuz it's no one doctor ever told me that and like and if I can segue briefly that's another thing that's come up a lot is that I didn't have any tools to help me like thank god for the internet now and the diabetes community on the internet because like 
I would just get a lot of judgment and like, bring your A1C one down, bring your A1C down. But no one ever says, how do you do that? So things like knowing that your, your blood sugars are going to shift based on your menstrual cycle. No one told me that. Like, I just figured that out. Like, what's going on? <laughs> Even if someone told you, like, do you wonder if you would have just been like, that's weird. I'm like, I don't care about that. I just got a note from a person this morning who, you know, talking about how great the pre-bolus episode was that we, we did. And, and she's like, how could it be possible that something someone's been saying to me my whole life, I've been ignoring, and then some random guy says it on a podcast, and I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like, like how did I ignore yeah. it all that time? And but hey, hey, here's an aside. Why period? Like, at what point did someone say menstrual cycle? Let's call it a period. Like, why not an ellipses or an asterisk? Or I don't like. Why did they pick period? Do you know what I mean? Why isn't it called a comma? Or I do. You, are you listening to me? Do you? I- <laughs> I love that it's so vague and mysterious because it's like the we don't want to talk about this thing. So it's very good that you talk about this with your daughter because there's nothing shameful about like your period, menstrual cycle, whatever. Like Are you it's all me? nature. That whole weird <laughs> thing that happens to you, ladies, it's making the whole world roll around. So no, it's very important. And but I still don't know who's. I would love to know the first person who was like, I don't want to say menstrual cycle. I'm gonna say period. And my grandma oh sorry to interrupt but my grandma called it your sick time so when i was growing up like that's your sick time sick time oh <laughs> i i know someone who says menzies and i don't know why but i i adore, adore that word i don't know what it means it makes you feel weird and unhappy and and, <laughs> and want to laugh all at the same time uh anyway if it was named after punctuation i i mean i mean maybe maybe somebody said one time you know what this sucks period <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that I could get behind. <laughs> okay, so so you're um, coming up. This is your experience over and over again. What's your first recollection of a of an A one C that that you remember having? Um, I could give a range probably when I was young. I was, I'm definitely thinking double digits, um, and then I know my worst, which I don't really want to say, but double digits. Um, but that, that first one I remember is from when I was an adult. I would also do, oh, I also faint when I get my blood drawn. So I've done lots of sneaky things to get out of getting an A1C taken. Do you faint every time someone draws your blood? It's getting better. It's getting better. 27 years Um, in, it's getting better. Hey, listen, by the time you're 65, I think you're going to have it under control, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, now they can test A1C with a finger prick, which like I've been going to kind of like a little like less professional hospitals, I guess. And so when I went in and they did it on a finger prick, I was like, what is this magic? It's done immediately. Um, that was cool. <laughs> I would love to know what a less professional hospital looks like, but that's a, that's another story. Uh, so, okay. So you had double digits, 10 or above a one season, even here, yeah. we're still hearing you have in your mind right now, there is a high number a one C you have a, a, a watermark that you've hit and you really, you still don't want to say it because you, you feel ashamed of it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know what? The way you phrase that, I'm trying very hard not to be ashamed. I remember an A1C of like 13, I think in my 20s. But there were lots of times where I just avoided taking the test altogether. Like I would do anything I could. Because you thought it was <laughs> higher than that even? Um, or around there. And the, yeah. the number was very meaningless to me. This is another thing I actually kind of wanted to talk about too is when... So when I was starting to think about getting kind of my life in order and getting my health in order, so maybe like mid-late 20s, 
I, people would actually, no, this goes from earlier, this target of like, you know, you need a six or 6.5 A1C seems so impossible, especially like, so thinking about the numbers, like being at a hundred made me feel like because I was, oh crap. I knew I I was going to swear. Don't worry. (laughs) I'll beep it out. And I've say this before and I'll say it again. If you all knew how amazing it was that I don't curse while I'm doing this podcast, it's really one of the great accomplishments of my life because I love to curse and do it almost all day long. So don't worry about it. We'll bleep it out. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. So I felt like crap. I felt like garbage all the time because I was so used to being at higher numbers and the idea of being at a hundred or 110 all the time, like I was first of all, I had no idea how to do it. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, it just seems so out of range. So why even try? I understand. I So everything you said makes sense, honestly. Um, first of all, the not feeling well part of it is so counter to, counterintuitive to what you're being told. Someone's telling you like, you know, your blood sugar should be 100. Then one day it gets to 100 and you're dizzy. Yeah. And you think, well, that's not right. I feel much better here. No one gives you the rest. Like it's always the rest of the sentence that doesn't get spoken. Uh, you want to have your blood sugar around 100 because, and by the way, because you've been so high recently, this is what it's going to feel like sir, for a while. So let's not just shoot for 100 right away. Why don't we just get you to 200? And then we'll get you to 150 and yep. then we'll keep moving you down. And, you know, and that's going to be the process that we follow. And by the way, here's how we're going to do that. But you were with, in a situation that I think most people find themselves in. They go into an endocrinologist's office and someone tells them, this is your goal but gives you no roadmap or tools to get to that goal. Just you have to accomplish this or you're going to, you know, what, whatever the scary stuff is that these people, you know, the ones who aren't good at it, blurt at people trying to scare them yeah. into, like how do you scare someone into doing something they don't know how to do? Uh, I, I, like, here, yeah. here's my example, right? If someone burst into this room right now, pointed a gun at me and told me to jump out the window and fly away, I'd be really scared but I'd still fall and hit the ground when I jumped out the window because I don't know how to fly. And and they didn't say get wings or get into a plane or here's what you're going to do to fly. They just said, do it right now. I'm going to scare you into doing it. And that just is is an incredibly stupid idea. It, and I it, think that's, it, you know, oh, sorry. No, it just doesn't work. It would never work. I think it's so important because I've had a lot of doctors do the scare tactic thing with me, like many and it is it has the opposite effect. I know some people that works and they get scared straight. Okay, but I doubt it works with most people. Because what it happens or what happened with me is that I get a doctor saying you're, you're going to lose your feet, you're going to have this problem, you're going to have this problem. Like you you know the consequences, and that would make me really not want to see the doctor again. Yeah, that's all it did. Made me avoid the doctor because you didn't know how to you didn't know how to stop quote unquote from losing your feet, and you didn't want to be told it was going to happen again. Now you're just trying to live in a blissful ignorance and get as far as you can before your feet fall off. And right, right. You're not. Yeah, I don't know who does that and thinks this will work. Like, like it just. It's got to be a tired person at their job, a person who just is either lacking in the real desire to get you to another place or in the way to talk to you about it. And I, you know, I just got done saying this to somebody recently, but because I record these so far away, it'll be six months ago the last time you heard me say it, so there's no shame in me saying it again. But how is it possible that a podcast helps a person? 
that I, a person who has no training, I have no medical training, I don't know anything specific that, you know, anyone else can't figure out on their own, and yet I found a way to talk to people where they don't feel like that. How is it a doctor can't find that? Like, how can you not figure out how to speak to someone to help them? And, And don't tell me everyone's different, because... I have almost a million downloads on this podcast. Everyone's different, and most people can figure it out if you just give it to them in a digestible way and and let them find their way to it. It's not difficult to communicate with people if you have a skill to do it. Like, And if you don't, then get out of the business. You know what I mean? Like, you're in a business where you're supposed to be communicating. Something confusing to people. You're making me yeah. upset, Megan. I'm getting upset. No, well, <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm upset as well, and that's kind of the thing that... I wish uh, some more doctors knew. And I think that it's, it's complicated too, because it's not just how we train doctors and like the lack of empathy training, but it's also, and doctors aren't the bad guy, but it's like time. Like, so when you mentioned before the, I forget, you said something about like the second part of the sentence is that, oh, you're going to feel like a, you're not going to feel great for a while. It's going to get better. Like all this time, you need time to explain the things. And what happens when you're in the doctor's office is you're with a specialist, they have 20 minutes, and they just tell you the directions. And I found out for my, myself just the way I learn, and I bet this is true for a lot of other people, is that if you just tell me the thing and don't tell me the mechanism by which it works, I'm not going to understand. So if you just say, like, shoot for 100, that's, that's meaningless to me. If you say, like, shoot for 100, you're going to take these steps, then it might feel bad for a while, but just understand that it's going to get better. And that's because your body's been used to this sugar. And now as you come down, it has to adjust to a new normal, like little stuff, but that takes time and doctors just don't have it. And so they just give the direction. And like, there's so many things like, think about like a non-diabetic person going, getting some medical direction. They're going to hear drink eight glasses of water. But if you don't understand why, then it's like, well, yeah, sure. That sounds like a good thing to do, but why? Like, Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's not fun drinking eight glasses of water, so you have to give me a really good reason to do it. I, you listen, have to understand. Yeah, right. No, yeah. I, and and that also keeps you from being surprised as changes come, so that you're not like everything that becomes different in your life, you don't stop and go, I wonder if this is okay or not. Just let somebody mm-hmm. know. I'm, you, you might feel dizzy at 150 for a while. Um, yeah. You know, go somewhere safe and try to ride it out. Don't push your blood sugar back up again to to make it feel better. and. Just any number of, I don't know. I just, even as you say that, that makes sense to me. And I don't think that's an unfair defense of the situation that doctors find themselves in with the short visits. But still, in 15 minutes, I could explain to you the necessity for you to pre mm-hmm. And that alone would keep your blood sugar lower so that the next time I saw you 15 minutes later, I could add another piece to it. Sure. It might take two years, but I still think I could build that house 15 minutes at a time. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the the best way, but I think that if that's the only way I had, I do think I could drag somebody along slowly through that time. And you know, you're right. There's nothing ideal about it to be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, a, a group Skype between all of your patients every day would probably be a more valuable use of 15 minutes. Oh, but totally. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like you could just have like a little seminar every day and people could pop in and out and get something out of it and move along. And I'm just, I'm a huge fan of that. Like, you know, like when you're filling your toolbox, you don't always get to fill it 
right up the first time. Sometimes you're walking along and you know, you're Dora the Explorer and you're like, oh, look, I need that, stick that in my backpack. And you know, maybe I don't have a use for it now, but when I find the next thing, these two things are going to work great together. I think that you can, I do think that's why the podcast works because sometimes you and I will have a conversation and somebody's going to hear something in it and then they'll listen to the next conversation and hear something different and eventually their backpack will be full and they'll be on their way. I know I started Toolbox and went to Backpack, but Dora popped into my head and I don't know why. So <laughs> No, it's great. I'm with it. Um, no, I think that's totally useful because I would say all the stuff that I've learned about managing diabetes and now I'm in pretty tight control. Mm-hmm. Like it started listening to this podcast and then, um, and the thing is too, you can take what applies to you and you can leave. There's been some things that you've suggested that I've tried. They're not for me based on like my body and the things that I've gone through. So I don't do them. Of course. Um, and then the, the online community is really great. Um, I remember, so in the early days of the internet going on the, there was like the forums, right? So I'd go on diabetes forums occasionally and I remember, again, these people who had these like beautiful A1Cs and they were just like, you know, if you are just a perfect angel of human behavior, you will have a great A1C and just feeling frustrated about that. But now it's so different because I think people are very honest Mm -hmm. Um, and the the Instagram community specifically has been fantastic because they talk about their ups and downs and a lot of people do include their downs. So, you know, hey, I'm not alone in this oh, I'm not the only one experiencing this weird blood sugar that happens with this thing. Um, Yeah, and it's just, it's more approachable. And then you can share kind of tips and tricks about what works. And that's the thing you never get in the the doctor's office is like, here's little things you can do to manage better. Like I went, even when I tried to get my diabetes in order a couple, like probably in my, when I was starting to try to get it in order in my mid twenties, like the only thing endocrinologists would talk about was my insulin dose and like, Hey, I can do basic math. Like I don't really need that much help with insulin dosing. Mm -hmm. Like I need help with like understanding digestion and hormones and all that stuff. And that's just not, I'm not getting that from kind of traditional doctors. Yeah. I think so. I obviously have a lot of like thoughts about how people share online and everything. And, but to go back to what you said about, you know, there's things I say that you're like, yeah, that didn't work for me. And I leave that aside, but this piece did. If I could, or anybody could, give you every... Imagine if I was able to give every single one of you your entire perfect picture. I couldn't do that. Like, that's insane. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know all the little ins and outs about your life, but what I've found is that there are sort of these basic tenets, and that they all hold basically true for most people. And so you can take the ones that work for you and help you and leave the ones that don't behind. And it's perfect. What I don't, and I do agree too that people showing their sort of like ebbs and flows is incredibly important because you could follow somebody and say, oh my gosh, look how great they're doing. But then if they're not doing great, you know, quote unquote, the next day or the next week, that's comforting too. You know, Arden's blood sugar is higher right now. You don't hear me say that on the podcast a lot because it honestly doesn't happen a lot, but it happens sometimes. And it happened today. She, you know, got something. And it really crushed her. So, you know what I mean? Like you're, you just, it's a different situation. And we stopped it and we, um, excuse me, I'm actually going to talk to her right now. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, what's happening. We stopped it and we fixed it and we're going to get it back again. But she, so she's at school and she's like, I'm going to go get something to eat. And I got really late notice on, I'm going to get something to eat. Right. <laughs> and so there's no pre-bolus. 
and I thought I was aggressive enough and I wasn't. And so then we had to come back around and be aggressive again. And now she's, you know, it's back, but it's not level. I didn't come in for the smooth landing. So we're going to have to grab it with some juice right now. And, you know, I'm going to get her level right around 90 and she's never having going to been low and wasn't over 170, but still, if, if we had a little more time and a little more notice, I wouldn't have, we wouldn't have hit the 170, but we did because life and all that, Mm -hmm. you know? And so when people are willing to share that online, that's incredibly valuable because you get to see everything doesn't have to be perfect. I try to remind myself every few weeks to put something up that doesn't look good so that people can see that that is, you know, my daughter has an A1C between five, two and six, two for five years, but look, her blood sugar goes up and down like yours does. You, you, you yeah. know, like, like, but, but there are also people who share and they're in a bad place or they only show, share the bad stuff or they want clicks. Yeah. So they do the clicky stuff, which is like, uh-huh. isn't, this, isn't this hard? This is so hard. Isn't this hard? It's so hard, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, it's hard. So I get a like or a click and they get to sell ads on their blog or whatever it is they're doing because they have a lot of clicks. That stuff I don't like. Like that makes, yeah. me, that makes me upset. Well, there's definitely the in, there's the, in the influencers, and I think there's a little bit of both too. I think it's kind of fascinating, and I do you know marketing for a living, so I think about this. But um, the there's definitely the um, what is it? Fitspiration. There's the people who are like on the T1D community on Instagram who are also kind of like the fitness Instagrammers, mm-hmm. and that's so like not. I'm you know I'm in my 30s. I don't care about that. Like so, it's like I have to kind of pick and choose among the people I follow. But it has been like kind of back to your point about like seeing the bad stuff and and the good stuff. It's helpful, especially if you are experiencing shame. Like the thing that destroys shame is talking about stuff. That's part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast because I'm trying to get over that stuff. And this was like a tool to help like, hey, if I go on this and can talk about my experiences to a lot of people I don't know, like I'm going to do a lot to reduce the shame that I felt for years of not taking care of myself. Um, But seeing someone else go through it and being able to reach out and just being like, I know there was someone posting the other day about having a bad week of blood sugars and nothing she could do could bring them down. And I was like, Oh, I've been there. I know what that's like. And just that little bit of, I don't know if it's like human connection or bringing the secret out of the shadow, but it's so helpful. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm excited to have you on because of that, because you are, so let's let's kind of bring people back into your story a little bit. So you, you know, become an adult, get into your 20s. You have the same sort of like doctor avoidance stuff that, that you grew up with. You're not going as much as you want to. And you say in your late 20s, you got a better job. And that helped. Mm-hmm. How did that help you with your health? Was it um, insurance or money or what? What? Where did that move you? Uh, yeah, money. <laughs> money. Okay. Um, I was definitely living, like I said, I worked in nonprofits most of my life, so I was not making bank. Um, and doctor appointments are expensive and I'm already going to preempt the, the, not your comeback to that, but like what someone might say is that like, well, yeah, but you need to prioritize your health. Yes. And if you're 24 and only have a couple hundred in your bank, like do I spend $40 on the copay or do I buy, you know, this thing or do I go to dinner? Like, you know, you just, you make choices. And so I wouldn't say like, I probably could have managed money in a way that would have made diabetes my number one priority. And it still would have been hard. I'm not sure if I could have afforded 
Dexcom and Omnipod. I actually couldn't have afforded all these things that I'm using now because the upfront cost would have been too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so not having money being such a stressor when I got this better job was a huge, huge help because I could, I didn't feel like going to the doctor was another thing that was hurting me. Good. Yeah. That's, that's, and so in that interesting, right? So you have some money now and now it's not, Oh, I have to go do this thing. That's going to be unpleasant, probably not end well, but I know I should be doing it and doing better. Not only that, but now I'm going to be broken. It's going to mess something else up if I do that. And, yeah. and so you're taken out of that situation. Healthcare is inc- not what we're talking about, but obviously very important, especially for chronic illnesses like this, where you have to go a lot to kind of manage and understand where you're at, you know, with with trends and your blood tests and all that stuff. It's really, it's, it's imperative. And you're showing that because you went and you started getting things back on track and you're, and you were moving in a better direction. Um, you were moving in a better direction. How, when did that start? <laughs> like, when did your move in a better direction begin? Like in year around? I think about three years ago, but it's been very slow. So like, I think three years ago, I started this job. I had a little more money. Um, so I was 28. Um, I think I also started being in a more serious relationship around that time. So less social pressure to like go out and do probably unhealthy things. Um, yeah, but it was still kind of slow going. I was working with one doctor and the same thing. I wasn't really getting the tools or the, the help to bring anything down. I was just kind of going more often and paying a little more attention, Mm -hmm. but all the things I couldn't have, there's only so much I could do. So I was getting it down slowly at a time, but almost like with zero guidance. Okay. And, and so what were your first steps to, is that when you found the podcast back then? No. So I'd say I started kind of getting things in order about three years ago, but not really, really getting them in order. I started like paying a little more attention. I remember when I finally had like an eight A1C probably two years ago, I was thrilled. And I know that's like insane high for some people, but that was so exciting to me to feel like I could do it. That's amazing. I mean, you came from double digits to eight by just like paying more attention to what was going on, not necessarily even making grand changes. Just what, what did that mean? Yeah. Like, Like correcting a high or what, what did, what did starting to pay attention look like? A new year and a new decade has arrived. Why not add to the list of new things, a new way for you to think about managing your type one diabetes. That's right. You or a loved one should be using, in my opinion, the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump. And you'll be able to decide if that statement works for you by getting yourself an absolutely free, zero-obligation demo of the Omnipod sent directly to your home. That's right. If you go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box, Omnipod will send you out an Omnipod, an insulin pump. It may be non-working, meaning it can't give you insulin. It's not going to inject a cannula into you. But you can wear it to feel the size and the weight how it looks, how it feels, and how it adapts into your life. You can bathe with it, swim with it, do a jumping jack. I don't care. Whatever you're doing, cook dinner, tumble around on the floor with a friend, whatever you got to do. And if it's on your kid, send them outside to play. I know it's cold, but they'll be all right. Anyway, check out the Omnipod, see how it fits into your life. And then if you want to continue, just contact Omnipod back and let them know, I want to do this. It's that simple myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. 
Start something new for yourself today. All right, so do you understand your day so far? You're going to go to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox, check out the Omnipod demo. Then you'll probably bop over to dancingfordiabetes.com just to see what's going on. And while you're full of the goodness in the life, you might as well go to dexcom.com forward slash juicebox and get started today with the Dexcom Continuous Glucose Monitor. Feel the comfort that comes with knowing the direction and speed that your blood sugar is moving. I need you to try to picture this. Your blood sugar is moving down. How quickly is it moving down? That's a big question, right? You test with a meter and you go, okay, my blood sugar is 90. Test again 20 minutes later, it's 85. I don't know what that tells you really. Is it about to stay at 85? You're not going to know without the Dexcom. With the Dexcom, you can see my blood sugar is dropping at one point every couple of minutes, two points every couple of minutes, or that's how fast it's rising. See when you've missed on a bolus. See when your adrenaline spiked up and you're going to need insulin at a time when you didn't realize it. Those are the things that the Dexcom does for you. My daughter's been using the Omnipod and the Dexcom for years, and I'm a huge supporter of Dancing for Diabetes. I can think of no better way to spend a couple of moments than to look into these three things today. I very much appreciate that you listen to the Juicebox podcast and that you consider supporting the sponsors. Now let's get back to Megan and go straight through to the end. What did starting to pay attention look like? Um, I think actually a big thing was making sure that I insulin for like every little thing that I ate. So like I'm like a bit of a snacker grazer mm-hmm. um, and I always, and I've had a, like, some eating issues in the past. Um, so knowing that even if you eat a little bit, you need to like, you need to insulin for it, even if it's a couple of grams of carbs. And then the flip side of that is, which I didn't know back then is that you're going to like stack your insulin a lot if you do that. So um, I think that was a big thing that changed. Um, I started slowly. So I used to keep my numbers really high when I went to bed because I would be scared of going low overnight. Mm -hmm. And I often did. And I think without any guidance, what I'd been doing was keeping my basal rate really, really high just for the day. And that kind of kept me steady enough, but I would often go low at night. So I kind of like would go to bed pretty high. So that high number that I go to bed at, I started kind of slowly bringing down, but I don't think I really kind of, um, I guess I'll, I'll just kind of continue my story a little yeah. bit because then I can explain how I've gotten in control now. You're doing great. I'm not stopping you. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I was slowly getting things in order and slowly bringing things down. And then last year in May, I had an eye hemorrhage. Um, I have proliferative retinopathy. Um, I had had retinopathy and the doctors were monitoring it. Um, and I'd actually had an ophthalmologist appointment, I think only a month before, but it can happen that fast. Okay. Um, so that kind of, I'd say a few months before I'd also started having some really tricky blood sugars where I was doing better in terms of managing. I think my A1C was in the sevens, but things were just really unpredictable and they're still a little unpredictable. And I think it's a combination of stress and hormones and uh, some diet changes and I'm kind of figuring it out. But I, at the time I was just very stressed out and my blood sugar felt like it was all over. And then a couple months later I had this eye hemorrhage and that's when I kind of got really, really scared straight, almost too scared straight and tried to like just absorb every piece of diabetes knowledge that I could get my hands on. So I think around then is when I started the podcast. So it's only been less than a year. Um, And I learned really fast to the point where Sometimes when I'm talking with other uh, T1Ds, because I'll go to like a meetup or I go to a support group now, um, I realize like I might know actually a little bit more because I've made this such a 
high priority. <laughs> um, but that's when I really started learning all the ins and outs of like pre-bolusing and what insulin can do and action times and digestion and like all the, you know, myriad factors that go into your daily blood sugar management. Yeah. Do you find when you're in uh, support groups that, that a lot of people's like sticking point is that they just don't have that kind of basic information? So I've only started the support group this year. So it's a newer one in Chicago. So I've only, we've only had a couple meetings. I don't know. And I think sometimes it's more support in terms of like, I'm not the only one going through this. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't feel as much like therapy as much like a group dinner with people and being like, Oh yeah, I have to do this too. And then we kind of can ask some questions about like, what do you do when this happens? What do you do when this happens? It's nice. It's a great, it's a really important piece of this that again, doesn't get told you by anybody that you have to go find other people in some fashion and, and see connection. Yes. Yeah. It's really important. Okay. Yeah. So, so your, your <laughs> eye, your eye is let's like make sure people understand like before we go forward, has, where, where's the eye at right now? Um, so I have the condition in both eyes. Um, the right eye is a little worse and I've had a hemorrhage in that eye. Um, I'm getting treatment. So you can do combinations of getting, um, I'm on something called a Vastin. So you get like a Vastin shots in your eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, that was formerly a drug for cancer and they found that it has this, um, unintended side effect of helping with diabetic retinopathy. Um, but it basically stops the, there's kind of, um, miscreant blood vessel growth when you have this condition. Um, and then those blood vessels are very weak because they're new and they can break and bleed. And that's what happened with me. Um, so Avastin kind of stops your brain from signaling to make those new blood vessels. Wow. So that's one part of it. And there's different drugs that do the same thing. Um, and then laser is the other thing. So I've had, um, I kind of get ongoing Avastin shots and then, um, and they're on different cadences because one eye is a little worse than the other. Mm -hmm. And then I've had laser in both eyes and we'll probably need laser again in the future. But um, ophthalmologists, I think, differ a little bit on what your treatment approach is. And I think now the thought is to make it more individualized, which is good. So that might not be anyone who's listening. Like that might not be your experience with your ophthalmologist. They might have a different treatment plan for you. Right. Well, that's – I'm imagining – the scariest thing that's ever happened to you pretty close. Yeah. 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 I would think so. Now I, 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 I don't want to make you feel bad, but I do want to ask, does that having something like that, that's now tangible, does every time your blood sugar start creeping up, do you think, Oh my God, I have to get it back down my eyes or are you able to live a little more free than that? Uh, it's definitely like that. And I'm working on it because this is the second part is that I definitely have out of control anxiety now because this thing happened and it's, it's getting better day by day. Cause this is all in the last year. Mm -hmm. So it's getting better. And I'm getting to the point where I don't freak out every time, like an aberrant blood sugar happens. But I, as I'm saying that, I'm realizing that's not even true. That ha it happens all the time. I'm starting to rise. I kind of get a little worried. And then, like, if it's low, I'm worried because I'm pretty symptomatic with lows. So, <laughs> yeah, I, the anxiety is really tough. And it's it's tough because 
anxiety causes your body to release all these hormones that cause your blood sugar to go up. So it's like this awful feedback loop where like high blood sugar, anxiety, higher blood sugar, insulin resistant, higher blood sugar. And then it's just this like, uh, it's this really hellish cycle. Um, and then you feel like you're doing something wrong. Like, like, Oh, my stupid an- anxious brain is the one causing all these issues. So it can, it can be really tough to manage, but I think that the eye stuff can exasperate exacerbate that feeling of anxiety for sure. I can imagine. I only have one thing to share with you about this. And this is something that I heard recently. Another person said to me, so the conversation was around alarm anxiety on their CGM Mm. and the idea that every, you know, she said every time the alarm rang, she's like, Oh great. I messed something up and you know, or what's wrong now or like that kind of feeling It always felt like that. But she said that she listened to the podcast and she pushed her alarm way down. So her high alarm was now like 120 or 130. So now when the alarm goes off, instead of thinking, oh gosh, I messed up, what bad thing happened? She gets to think, oh, I'm about to do something positive that's going to keep my blood sugar from ever getting high. Yeah. And she said that tiny little change took that, um, that feeling away that her CGM was an alarm to tell her that things weren't going well. Instead, it was an alarm to tell her how she could do something really simple, really easy, very quick. That was good. It all was good based instead of bad based. Totally. And that makes, that makes sense to me. And I'm trying lots of little like tips and tricks. And that's actually a big one is that I, I just got on Dexcom in the summer and it is a life changer. I think that's the other unspoken thing in this, like how I've gotten my blood sugars in control is definitely Dexcom. But there's a flip side to that is that it it makes my anxiety go through the roof. And a big thing is the alarms. I turned off all the alarms because I couldn't deal with it. Um, I have them on at night, but not during the day Um, because it would just give me like a panic attack basically. And the weird trigger for me, like, oh my God, such a trigger is seeing the little up and down arrows. And then I will, without thinking, do start correcting it in whichever direction, but not taking the time to think like, Hey, is this the right thing to do? So I'll just like jump into action. And so if it's like going low, maybe eating too much, or like I do this frequently, if I'm going high, like the kids call it rage bullishing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And (laughs) so just things that aren't like the smart, wise decision to do in that moment, where if you just took a breath, but those arrows, man, they get me. But I think that's my goal in terms of anxiety is that I want to get to a point where I'm calm enough where I can see the arrows and not feel so many feelings and just kind of take it in. It's a number treat if you need to, and then kind of move on. But I'm a little far from there right now, but I'm hoping that someday that happens. Can we pick into that for a second? Because it's interesting to me because I experienced what you're talking about in the beginning, but I'm not an anxious person by nature. So I was quite literally able to stop myself. Like you've heard me on the podcast say like, you can't be dramatic around diabetes, right? Because mm-hmm. it stops you from making good decisions and you spend so much time just, you know, being dramatic that you can't like, and I don't mean that dramatic to be insensitive. I just mean it to be, you know, communicative of the idea of like, oh my God, like, or panic yeah. or whatever. So I was actually able to say to myself at some point, you can't do that anymore, Scott. Like you can't look at this and be upset. You can't see the arrows and be upset. You can't see the number and be upset. It's all got to be just data to make better decisions with. And I, and I made that leap past that because I used to be like my wife, I know I've said it here before, but I, my wife said the, you know, S H I T would come out of my mouth a lot. Like I would like see Mm -hmm. something on the CGM Uh and say that. 
and just be like, oh, and she's like, you know, you say that like a thousand times a day. And I'm like, I don't mean it. Like, I'm not upset. I'm just like, oh, I can't believe it got to that. I didn't think that was going to happen. But just stopping myself from reacting that way was a big step in me not thinking about it like that. And, yeah. And so, but, but I also don't have the problem you have. And so I was wondering if you, if you can, if you can't, that's fine. I just think it would be interesting for people to hear. Can you talk about when the mechanism hits, what, what this, like what it feels like in your brain when you see, <laughs> when you see an arrow up, like what happens? Is it, do you, do you hear voices telling you things? Do you have thought? Like, I don't know what I'd love to know if you can put it into words. Oh, sure. I sure can. Um, <laughs> also, it's funny that you mentioned the like saying curses when you look at the CGM, because that's the thing that my boyfriend has definitely told me that happens a lot, like where he's like, you don't even hear yourself doing it so much. But mm -hmm. I relate to that. Um, yeah. So if I'm having a high blood sugar and I think knowing your triggers, I think is important for any kind of anxiety thing. So like like the up arrow for me is like a trigger. The um, I would say also like a blood sugar I didn't expect is very triggering to me. So, you know, all of a sudden I both, I had the same meal, I did the same steps and like, and all of a sudden I'm 180, which usually I don't even get that high, but, um, well, look at you bragging I, now. I, know, I was no. like, Oh, roll it back. Um, <laughs> but it's cause I'm like so glued to my Dexcom that I'm like watching. So it's, I see it before 180, but, um, the, yeah, so I'll like start, I, I am very physically symptomatic with stress. So like I will start feeling like my chest get really tight and then I know, so there's this whole, like I'm anxious about the blood sugar. And I think if you kind of unpack the thinking around it, it's like, Oh man, high blood sugar means like my, I'm, my eyes are going to get messed up. I'm going to go blind. I'm going to die. I'm going to get kidney stuff. That's kind of the like train of thought that goes, mm -hmm. but I don't even think I, I don't consciously think those things. That's like, that's several steps beyond. I'm at the point where I'm just reacting. And if I wanted to unpack it, I could get to all those things, but it, I don't even, it's not as logical as just being like, well, you're going to be fine. It's okay. Yeah. It's really this like body reaction. So I have, so I see the number, my chest gets tight. And then there's this whole anxiety on top of the anxiety, which is like, it's very common with people with panic attacks. They start getting afraid of having a panic attack and not the initial stressor that was causing the panic attack. So it's, so I'm anxious and I know I'm anxious because my chest is tight. My brain's starting to go 3000 miles an hour. And then I'm like, well, don't get anxious. Your blood sugars are going to be bad. Like, don't get anxious. Don't get anxious. And funny thing that kind of thought is not very relaxing. So, <laughs> so that's kind of how it goes. Um, so some days are better than others and I can just chill and be like, okay, treat it. It's going to come down. And then some days, you know, you're, it had the physical reaction happens so fast. You just can't do much to stop it. And you got to kind of ride it out. It, it is absolutely fascinating to hear you explain that because it, it's not my reality. And it's, as you're talking, the first thing that pops into my head is the wrong answer for everything you said. Like, like, do you know what I mean? Like you said, mm -hmm. you know, having a, a clear thought, like this isn't how I should be thinking, doesn't stop it. it, mm -hmm. it there's no, there's no common sense that common sense is you out of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so you're learning coping mechanisms and therapy and things like that. Do they help or or do you just need to become a weed person? Like what, what, what exactly <laughs> is, 
and and I'm not a drug advocate, but I'm as you're talking, I'm like I, Megan needs to relax. And so <laughs> this is so funny because I was thinking about that in bed last night. I was like, I probably just need weed, and I was like, don't bring that up on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've never said that out loud before. I I will tell you something now that people will find completely. Uh, most people find difficult to believe, but I don't believe I'm 47 in my lifetime. I don't believe that I have had the equivalent of a case of beer and I've never been high and it wow. just, it just doesn't occur to me to do. It's, it's not a moral judgment. It just, it really just doesn't work. Like it just, it never occurs to me. It doesn't occur to me to drink. It doesn't occur to me to get out of my head. Like none of that happens, but I know people it helps, and my goodness, you seem like maybe you're one of them. Yeah. Uh, it, well, because the other thought is you need like some sort of medication, and that's not a great way to live either, right? Or, have you tried that? It's, or? it's tricky. I've been considering it to um, – I worry about like blood sugar management with all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say another thing too, like I self-medicated with alcohol quite a bit, and that's hard for me to talk about, but it is what I did. So now that – I don't do that very much. I don't really have, I had a great tool for ma- managing anxiety. A really, get, really good one. Get loaded and, and sit on the sofa. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it worked because I could see numbers and I'd be like, okay, well that's happening and treat if I needed to, but I didn't feel this like terror. Um, but now that I don't do that, I, I'm kind of trying, I'm in this process right now where I need to find something to replace it to manage anxiety. So mm-hmm. I had I'd use that coping mechanism for a long time, and now I need to. You but it, you can't just like not have a coping mechanism. Right. You, you need to find something. I do think um, but, that I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to cut you off for a second because I think that it is most people's inclination to address alcohol use or drug use. They're for people who are definitely in situations like you. Which, by the way, most people who are doing that are trying to mask something. And for those of you who don't feel that way or don't have those triggers or that anxiety. Uh, to judge that is is horrible. You, you, you know what I mean? Like you you don't know what it is to have the experience that Megan just described. That cycle that doesn't just it's not just an A and B cycle. A, a C jumps in and like mm-hmm. makes it spin faster. And then everything she can think of to stop it makes it worse. And it, you can't live like that. You, you know. What I mean? And then you add the diabetes to it. You know. My God, like I would have been drinking with both hands probably. And, and you know what I mean? Like, so anyone who would hear that and judge that, I would say that's a situation where you just don't, you don't know. And it's really brave of Megan to come on and talk about it. And so, uh, keep that in mind as we keep going, please, because she's really trying to share here and she's doing a great job. So, okay. So you tried the drinking path, which. Yeah, it's not very healthy. It's never going to work, right? And you're you're beyond that, which is good for you. That's amazing. Um, I, you know, (laughs) I've indicated maybe a medication would help you, but then we're talking about like, you know, like the Zoloft Paxil, you know, Wellbutrin road, which has its own speed bumps that you might not be interested in. And, And at the same time, you can't keep flipping into this cycle over and over again, because now you have real concerns about your health. And it's, you, you know, you're right. Something has to, you have to do something somewhere. And so what is it that's occurring to you to do? Like where, what direction do you think you're going in? I'm trying everything, which like might be counterintuitive. Also, I had to take a step back, but, um, so therapy is a big thing, but therapy is kind of a slower process. Um, a lot of people recommend meditation and I'm, 
giving that the college try. And I think it's really important, but it's a, it's a habit that's a little hard to cultivate. I think for a lot of people, um, are you trying transcendental <laughs> meditation? Is that the way you're going? Uh, mindfulness, mindfulness, but I kind of try everything and I'm open to everything. Um, and that's definitely when, it, when it's going well, that is very helpful because the few times I've been able to like see an arrow on the CGM and kind of be relaxed about it. It's been usually because I've been like meditating a little bit more and can kind of take a step back from my feelings, like not identify so strongly with my feelings and kind of have that, uh, good detachment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's helpful. Um, I, you can't see right now, but I have my essential oil diffuser going. So get a little bit of that, just stuff to help your body relax. Have you tried the CBD um, oil? I actually should give that another college try because, mm. um, so fun that you mentioned weed. I actually don't get high most of the time that I tried it. It happens now and again. So that's another tricky. It might not be my thing, but, um, <laughs> Megan, you're I'm so open. screwed. Even weed won't work for you. I know. <laughs> If people have suggestions, <laughs> let me know. Well, I think that some of it too is just coming, becoming comfortable with my new normal, mm-hmm. with taking care of my eyes, um, and knowing that not every there's so much out of your control, and I think that's what it comes down to. So like the anxiety is because you think that you can do something that's going to make it better, and that's true for a lot of stuff with diabetes. But there's some stuff that's just going to be random, and a lot of the stuff with my eye health is it's random. Um, so just kind of being comfortable that, yeah, there's going to be ups and downs and yeah. much easier said than done. than done to be like relaxed about it. And I'm like feeling really good right now sitting in my, in my living room. But yeah, when you're actually in a crisis is when you, <laughs> when it, you know, yeah. SHIT hits the fan. No, I know. Listen, so I have one thought for you after talking to you for 55 minutes and maybe you'll find this useful and maybe you'll be like, Scott, that's stupid. That's not going to work. But you mentioned earlier in the podcast that, when you were diagnosed and when you were younger, how helpful it would have been if you heard the the drawn out descri- description, like you're going to do this thing and then this is going to happen and it's going to make you feel like this. And that if you had that information, that forward looking information, that you would have found it really valuable and calming. And so the leap we make when you say that is that it's going to go somewhere good and because it's going to go somewhere good, you're okay with it when you hear it. And I'm wondering if you can't just break up the, my blood sugar is going to go up, I'm going to feel like this, it's not valuable for me to feel like that because this is going to happen. Can you think it through before you get to it so that when it happens, it's expected? And would it being expected stop it from being reactive? Yeah. And I think that's a big component is kind of knowing ahead, like, and this is like, I think common too with people with control issues, which is very closely related to anxiety mm-hmm. is kind of being prepared for, for those kinds of things. And I think that's been helpful to me because actually, even though I'm still very anxious and I have a lot of trouble with it, but if you'd seen me in last May, like when, like I had my eye hemorrhage, that was like panic attack a day. So I'm like, I'm, doing much better. Um, and a lot of that is kind of being able to know, Hey, you're just going to treat it and it's going to come on. Or sometimes it doesn't come down. Sometimes you have insulin resistance and that's okay. You'll do more insulin. You'll watch it kind of knowing that ahead is, is helpful. Yeah. It's like, I think the, what I'm working on now is there's sometimes there's surprises like, and that's kind of what I referred to before is like triggers. Mm-hmm. Like, 
you got to kind of know your triggers. So maybe the next thing I work on is like being a little more prepared for these triggering episodes that are a little more of surprises. I want you to know that in my mind that I'm not being reductive. I imagine you like Curly from the Three Stooges, just like hitting yourself and wiping your face and running in circles. And that's <laughs> to me is what it must have been like a year ago. You just you're just like woo 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 woo, and just like, yeah, because that that's what that's what in my mind that's the that's the sound effect that pops into my mind when too many things happen at once. I'm just like oh. wow, everything just got really wonky out of nowhere and and there's no and you have to reorder everything but i have the ability to just stop and step back and then assess Mm -hmm. and move forward and you your brain works in a way where those things start happening and you just pick the worst one and run at it on fire yeah it happens so fast right that's the thing is like rationally i know all these things but it it can just happen so fast that it yeah well i first i want to tell you that you have my I don't know what you, you know, what the right thing, but my empathy for sure, because it cannot be easy. And, uh, and it sounds like a tortured way to live some days and, uh, no one deserves that for certain. Um, I don't know if anything you and I spoke about today would help helped you, but I hope it did. Um, I definitely think it helped other people, which maybe in that would help you. That knowledge might make you feel better because you're going to reach, you know, honestly, countless thousands and thousands of people who are now going to hear your story and maybe avoid that being their story someday. Uh, and, and that's really a great kindness that you did by coming on and sharing all this. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to get to? I think I would just make a final, thank you for saying all those things. Um, I think I'd make a final plug for being an advocate for yourself in the doctor's office that if you need to slow things down, um, and you need to ask more questions, do that. Like, I wish I'd gotten help a lot earlier. I wish I hadn't just tried to do this alone. So I guess it's, it's two pronged, like make sure that you're with a doctor. You like try to find someone it's hard, um, and ask questions as you need to. And, um, don't let anyone shame you. And then also reach out for emotional support, because I think that would have, that would have helped me earlier on too. So well, you to s- do those things, reach out. Yeah. Well, you said something that I hope people heard, which is there was a point where somebody important came into your life and you said it was a boyfriend and then you started trying to do better. If I've heard over and over again on this podcast, when loving someone else can lead people to taking better care of themselves. And so being loved and being in a relationship like that, and it doesn't have to be romantic. It could be, it could be a friend or a family member or somebody who just clearly cares for you and doesn't, it doesn't have to be set, right? Like that person doesn't need to walk up to you every day and go, Megan, I love you and I want you to be healthier and I'm here for you. It doesn't have to be like that. Sometimes it's just the knowledge that you're there. And, Uh you know, like I, I, I'll tell you the silliest little, like, parable about that. So my son is away at college and he liked this video on Twitter. And it was a video about a major league pitcher who had been working really hard and um, really just honing his craft, but wasn't having the success that he felt like his skill and work should have led him to. And so he just kept doing the things he was supposed to do, the work, you know. But one day he realized that he had to step back. So he he just went and found something else that wasn't baseball to 
busy his time with and to give him some balance and perspective. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my son retweeted that or liked it. And I thought, well, that must be important to him, right? But just calling him up and being like, hey, I saw you like that video. Are you looking for balance in your life, buddy? Like, do you know what I mean? Like that would be stilted and, and weird and not the right way to go and would chase him away. So as crazy as it sounds, and now I have to find the guy's name before I let you go, the pitcher. Um, but so week or two later, this guy's pitching. Uh, he's a Cleveland Indians pitcher. I want to say his name's Cahill. And I'm going to figure it out right now. Hold on so I can tell you the rest of the story. This is exciting on a, um, on a podcast when people talk. <laughs> Nothing better. Well, you have the sound effect though, the typing. Oh yeah. It That's really good. it really grabs your attention. Um <laughs> where how is this not popping right up? Oh, come on, internet. Don't let me down now. Why does the internet not love me? It loves other people. I see it be nice to other people all the it time. It does not love other people. It doesn't? You don't think so? Hold on a second. No. How is it not? Now I'm getting angry. I'm now mad at the internet. Hold on a second. Because I Googled the wrong thing. I'm Trevor Bauer. Where did I come up with Kate? All right, let's not go there. Okay, so Trevor Bauer uh, is the pitcher. And if anybody wants to, I'll have to put the video into it so people can see it. Because it's just this mindful little video of a guy who just has been working his butt off his whole life at something and put himself in the right physical, you know, um, mindset, uh, you know, his, his mechanics were right, but it's just, his mind wasn't really there. So the, this goes up and, you know, my son likes it. And a couple of weeks later, this Trevor Bauer guy at the beginning of the baseball season is throwing a no hitter going into like the sixth inning, which is pretty amazing. And so I'm at, while this is happening, I'm at Home Depot because I needed a larger desk for my podcast, which by the way, I have now. And I did not get it. And I did not get it at Home Depot. I found somewhere else. But I was at Home Depot and this pops up on my phone. Trevor Bauer's taking his no hitter into the sixth inning. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So what did I do? I texted my son. Hey, Trevor Bauer's got a no hitter going if you want to watch. I didn't say I saw the video and I, I saw your retweet. And I know this. I just said it. And like, you know, here it is. And a few minutes later, he's FaceTiming me. And I'm walking around Home Depot FaceTiming with my son. And he starts telling me about the video. I don't know if you saw it, he says. But, you know, this guy just, you know, it's blah, 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 and all that stuff. I never said, yeah, yeah, that's why I told you about it. I just let it go. I didn't need, I didn't need uh -huh. credit. Like, right? I didn't need credit for it. Like, that wasn't the point of it. The point of it was to let him know, like, I've got his back. Do you know what I mean? Even in a yeah. way, even in a way that he's not a hundred percent sure that's what I'm saying to him. We just had sameness all of a sudden and he didn't know why. So a month later, I'm at his school and we are having, he just got done playing and I took him out to dinner afterwards and we were sitting there and he said something about balance. And I said, yeah, I saw that you liked that, that tweet, um, that tweet about the Trevor Bauer video. And then he launched into talking about it. And when we were all done and I thought that we had gotten pretty much everything out of, you know, that, that, that I was going to get out of that, you know, parentally, I said, actually, you know, if you remember when I told you that he was pitching a no hitter, I did that because I knew you liked that tweet. 
and I just, you know, I wanted you to know that I was thinking about you, you know, and, um, and that's what he got out of it. So you don't need to be right up someone's butt to tell yeah. them that they love you, that you love them, right. Or that you've got their back or that they can feel comfortable around you. So as a really long way of saying, there's a lot of ways to support people that aren't the ways you see on sitcoms, I guess. Yeah. And actually, I think that's a really good way that you put it, because I think at a certain time in my life, if people had come up to me and said they wanted to help, I would have pushed them away. Mm -hmm. um, but I think like I, I think of it with my boyfriend now. So I had agonized for a long time over getting a pump because it felt like I was constantly pressured into getting a pump and I didn't want one. And now I have one. Um, but uh, something happened like two, maybe a year. Yeah, probably about a year ago where he's like, oh, you should just get the or he said something that was very accepting about getting the pump. It wasn't like, here's what you should do. He's not very involved in my diabetes like that. But he was like, oh, yeah, it's like no big deal. And something about just the acceptance of that was like, oh, it's no big deal. It was like wearing something on me all the time. My partner doesn't care. Like just little stuff like being there like that is so important. Yeah. No, it's just it, it's difficult to quantify, right? The idea that someone's there for you or, you know, wouldn't care if they walked in and saw you in the shower with an insulin pump on. And yeah. Because I, you know, we've heard from adults in the past who say there was somebody on recently who said, I didn't get an insulin pump for a long time because I just didn't think it was sexy. So I didn't want to do it. And, and that was that. She's like, I knew it was, you know, I knew it could have helped me. And I was like, well, I don't want, I don't want men to see me that way. And that's, you know, what you girls don't know is you could be wearing 75 insulin pumps. We wouldn't care. <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, it wouldn't make any difference to us. I, I really mean that. You could fall in a mud hole and stand up and I'd be like, yep, I'm still good with it. It just really is. Uh, you don't understand how boys' brains work, I guess. Yeah, uh, that's real. <laughs> <laughs> if you're worried about that, you're worried about the wrong thing. But it is a worry, like, because I think when I was younger, too, that was a thing like, oh, this is going to be, it's going to make me different, or I'm not going to be as cute, and yeah, it's mm -hmm. silly stuff. No, I know. It, and it's, I mean, who would know? That's why I tell people all the time, I know that you don't want people to see your pump or your CGM, but honestly, for your long-term health, and I don't mean your physical health, but for your long-term mental health, just put it somewhere where people can see it and be done with it. And, yeah. you know, and if somebody gives you, you know, a problem about it, I don't know what to say. Move. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> go to a more accepting part of the world, but don't let someone tell you that this is wrong and then you take it off. Like, it just you just got to keep going. And I mean, listen, don't get me wrong. If you're in a bullying situation or something like that, that's different. I'm talking about in general. You know, in, in general, you got to go be you. And whatever people think about it, they think about it. I'll leave you with this thought wrapped around that. Um, if you have a moment. I know you're at work. Yeah. But they don't pay you. So what, what do you care? Um <laughs> By the way, did, who would have thought that when you were going to work for a nonprofit, they meant you? <laughs> oh, no. You're not going to make a profit is what they meant. <laughs> anyway. Oh, true. <laughs> but um, I was just on the phone with a person that I do business with yesterday. And they said that um, they said that they had heard from somebody that didn't like my podcast. And, uh, and they asked them why. And the person said, well, you know, he just he comes off like he knows everything and everything he says is going to work for me. And, you know, in the end, what it turned out to be is that that person didn't really have a problem with what I was saying as much as a problem with how it made them feel. And uh, it, and it uh -huh. made them feel like they were failing. And I said, well, I try really hard to present a possibility. 
And if you misread it in the beginning as me being like boastful, I mean, I'm, there's not a ton I can do about that. I guess I've, I've, I've scaled back personality enough. This thing still has to be interesting or you're not going to listen to it. So I still, this it still needs to be entertaining. Right. And so, um, the conversation led into the person saying it was weird because that person like got through it and they do like the podcast now. And it's like, Oh, it's interesting. Um, but what, what's it like to hear that someone doesn't like you? And I was like, Oh, that's no problem. I've, I've, I've never had an issue with that. Even growing up, you know, when I was much younger and I met my wife, she said to me one day, that guy really doesn't like you. How does, like, does that bother you? And I was like, no, not at all. I said, to be perfectly honest, I don't think he's a great person. And I would wonder what it says about me if he did like me. And so my point is, is that if three people who would bully you about wearing an insulin pump don't like you, it's good they don't like you. Those are the people you don't want to agree with you. Yes. Right? You, you, there's nothing about them that should correlate to you. You're a decent person. You don't want that guy. Like, I mean, just, I don't want to, I don't know who to use as an example, right? But you don't want like the bad guy in the movie to be your best friend because why does he like you? What does that say about you? And, and I, and I just said to my wife way back then when we were just dating, I was, I told her that. And I said, look, everyone's not going to like me. The best I can do is be myself. Some people like me and that's got to be enough. Like, what am I trying to do? I can't make everyone happy. And I just think that that's important when you're, when you're living with diabetes, like you just need to be you. And if some people don't like that, then too bad. Then those are people you don't talk to. At least now you know, and you can avoid them. You're not going to waste your time with them. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I can leave us on a really positive note about this too. Is I that was going to ask that because it got sad there in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> the um, yeah, and it's you know that's the reality, and I don't think it's bad to talk about Not sad things. Um, on a positive note, I've really kind of owned my diabetes now. Like like I said, I'm going to the support group, and I'm going to these meetups, and I'm talking to people on Instagram, and I'm like I'm excited about my pump. Like I've got an Omnipod and it makes life so much easier. And I, I kind of like showing it off. I feel like I show it off too much. I'm getting to be weird, but like, it's, it's a good thing. <laughs> I don't think you're weird. And I think you need, I think you should do whatever, whatever makes you happy. Let your, uh, let your diabetes flag fly. Seriously, just get out there and all right. So Megan, look, I want to wish you all the best. I, I would like it if you kept in touch, I would love to know how things are going for you. Um, you know, especially with not just with your eyes, but with, I think with the anxiety and everything, because your A1C is rocking. You're down. What'd you say? When you sent this email, it was six, six. Yeah. And I'm six, five now. Yeah. That's really great. And I got to a six, one, but it was actually probably not great for me. So six, five is pretty good. That's not just pretty good. Really. Let's be honest. It's, (laughs) it's amazing. And, and you're talking about coming from, did you say a 13 at one point? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So let's just say you're doing great and, and you really should just, I hope, I hope you can hear that and, and just accept it as a a well-meaning, well-intended, honest compliment and not, not let your brain take you any further than that. When you hear it, you're doing great. I think that you just keep doing that and you're going to be, you're going to be great moving forward. You're not going to need, you're not going to need all that, uh, that other stuff that, 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 you know, kind of like, uh, was holding you down before. I'd love to know how you're doing. I think, I think it's possible that six months from now, you tell me that, you know, you've really kind of broken free of a lot of this. And uh, I think that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. Oh, listen, 
I don't have anxiety, so it's easy for me to say. <laughs> I, I, I can't even... I can't even begin to imagine like a, a number of times. And let's just say goodbye. We'll stop recording. But um, <laughs> all right, so goodbye, everybody. That's it. But I'm going to keep talking to Megan for a second. The sixth season of the Juicebox podcast has started off strong, powerful, even with two great guests, Jenny and now Megan. So much more to come in 2020. I really appreciate you listening. Don't forget to share the show with someone else. And thank you so much. For supporting the sponsors. In this episode, they were Dexcom, Omnipod, and Dancing for Diabetes. There are links at juiceboxpodcast.com in the show notes of your podcast player. And of course, you can always type them out. Myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. Dancing the number four diabetes.com. And starting later this month, I want to welcome Contour Next One, Arden's blood glucose meter to the family of sponsors of the podcast. I look forward to telling you more about the Contour Next One in the coming days, weeks, and months. But for now, let's just say this. It's little, it's pretty, it's easy, works terrific. I have never had a meter match up so closely with Arden's G6. Arden has been using the Contour Next One for, it's gotta be a year now, and it's honestly been the absolutely best blood glucose meter experience that she's ever had. And now... I would like to give you a little something about Megan. So after I edited this episode, I found myself thinking maybe Megan should come back on one day, but I wish I knew how she was doing now because what you of course don't realize is that Megan's episode was recorded a long time ago. And so I reached out to Megan and I said, is there anything I could put at the end of the episode to let people know how you're doing? And she sent back a note. She said, hi, Scott, that's awesome. Where am I now? Hmm. Well, there haven't been any major changes. The anxiety for sure has gotten easier as time goes on, but it's still there and something I work on daily on managing with my therapy, journaling, and mindfulness. The biggest change and the best treatment for my anxiety has been getting a dog. We adopted our boy Nikita in July, and I swear nothing chills you out like petting a giant fluffy wolf dog. And she gave me a picture, so I'm going to put the picture at juiceboxpodcast.com for you. Uh, Actually, I'll put it up on Instagram too. Beautiful dog. Although weed is legal in Illinois as of three days ago, so who knows what the future holds. Look at Megan throwing a little humor in there at the end. Oh, and my last A1C was 5.8, and I'm still loving my Omnipod. Anyway, use as much of this note or as little as you'd like. I can't wait to hear the episode, Megan. So that's it for today's show. Hey, if you're in Oklahoma, come see me this weekend. I will be speaking at the JDRF Type 1 Nation event on the 11th of January. Come one, come all. We're going to be talking about being bold with insulin and a lot more at the JDRF in Oklahoma. If you come, you may catch me try to sing from the musical Oklahoma. It's a strong possibility I'm going to make that mistake. <laughs>